Raise your hand if you like reality TV. Uh, my favorite television is reality TV, uh, not reality TV like the Kardashians or uh, Big Brother or The Bachelor, even though I know some of you are big Bachelor fans here, Bachelorette fans. I really enjoy reality TV like sporting programs uh, or like The Voice or American Idol or Dancing with the Stars. Uh, and I also really like America's Got Talent. I love watching people put their talents on display. And then uh, when they put the musical background behind it on YouTube and everybody starts to cry and it's really a powerful moment, I I like those kind of moments. I like the drama of moments like this one uh, where Damien does a little magic. Check this out. My favorite moment of that video is where she punches him in the chest. Did you guys see that? <laughs> She's so mad at him for, like, doing that to her. Now, when you see something like that, something that's so spectacular, something that's amazing like that, how do you react to that? My guess is some of you all react with fear. And just like his girlfriend or Simon Cowell, you react in a way that's really fearful. You're like, what happened? I saw somebody in here with their hand over their mouth. You know, they're like, oh, man, what is going to happen? Is he going to be able to breathe? And so some of you probably reacted with fear. Some of the rest of you may have reacted with doubt when you saw that. 
there's a, automatically you're just a cynic at heart. You just go, I don't really know what happened, but whatever, this is ridiculous, and I don't even want to watch this anymore, okay? There's just this kind of cynicism that happens in some when they see stuff like that. Some of the rest of you may just have questions. You didn't doubt it. You saw him in the box, and you know he came out of that box, but you may have still had some questions. How did he do that? You're the kind of person that's going to go on YouTube this week, going to look up America's Got Talent, Damien, how did he do that? And you're going to try to find the answer to that. How many of you are like that? Raise your hand. If you're inquisitive like that. Now, some of the rest of you, you just are involved in joy, what I'll call joy and amazement. You don't care. I don't care how he did it. This is amazing. How did he go from that box and have dirt put on him and suddenly be standing out there, have time to change clothes? I, I don't even know how he did it, but it's amazing they did that. How many of you are like that? I just love it. I just enjoy it. It's just joy and amazement. Well, magic tricks don't matter, you know? Chains, getting out of chains or locks, that doesn't matter. Even escaping from a grave like that doesn't matter. Unless you're dead. <laughs> then that matters, <laughs> Because there's somebody that would be in the grave, that would escape from the grave, that would be the greatest escape ever. That would matter. In fact, if the person who escaped from the grave died execution style, but three days later arose from the grave and was in perfect health, that would matter. If the person who escaped from the grave, who had died execution style, who arose in perfect health three days later, had also predicted his death and resurrection prior to him ever dying and resurrecting, and that would matter. And if the person who escaped from the grave, who died execution style, who arose in perfect health, who had predicted his death and resurrection prior to it ever happening, and who claimed to be God in the flesh, who came to live among us, who performed undeniable miracles, who said his death was a substitutionary death for all of us. In other words, his death was a death in my place and your place because we owe a penalty for our sin, and that is death. And if he said that he did all of this for us, friends, that would matter. Magic doesn't matter, but we celebrate an event today that literally changed the course of human history. And the same reactions to something spectacular, even something so simple as, as that video, those are similar reactions to really what the apostles had to something that was miraculous in the first century. And we learned this story not only through the account of history, but also through the records of a man named Luke, for one. Luke wrote about the accounts that were of this day and of the days that surrounded it. In fact, he wrote about Jesus' life. He recorded it in a book that we call Luke. He didn't call it that. But Luke was a doctor. And Luke recorded the events of Jesus' life, the miracles, the death, the resurrection, and then the ascension of Jesus. And this is what it says in Luke 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They were going to do like a modern-day embalming, I guess in ancient history. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they had entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, just for a minute, put yourself in that scene and in that moment. These women were on their way. They had just seen three days earlier their leader, their friend, their mentor, the Messiah, die brutally, execution style. All the emotion of that. Imagine losing someone close to you, especially in that way. And now you're in that moment. And then you're going to kind of honor his body in a, in a kind of a last rite to say, we love and honor you, and so we want to do a burial rite with you. Now you're going to the graveside, and you're going to celebrate that. But imagine the feeling when you get to that graveside, and suddenly he's not there. Your, your emotions are going wild. What are you thinking about in that moment? Well, I think one of the emotions would be what we talked about a minute ago, to be fear. 
And in fact, that's what happened in these ladies. Verse 4 says, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women lowered down with their faces, or bowed down with their faces to the ground. And, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Wouldn't you be afraid? I mean, here you are in a moment where you are with, you are hoping to celebrate or at least to memorialize or at least to help prepare for that burial, your, your friend, your mentor. And suddenly in that moment, he's not there, but instead of him, two men gleaming with white angels are there. Who wouldn't be afraid? I mean, angels are not a regular occurrence, even in the Bible. And they had a fear in that moment. Now, there are two types of fear in the Bible. There's an unhealthy fear and there's a healthy fear, okay? The healthy fear is a fear of God. It's like a respect of God. You're all struck before God. I had a healthy fear of my dad when I was a kid. I was not scared of him, at least not usually scared of him. I didn't think he was going to actually kill me, even though I might have said the phrase, my dad is going to kill me. But I didn't think he's actually going to do it. But I did have kind of a healthy fear of him, meaning I had a respect for my dad. And even as I became a man and he became older, if dad called me and said, I need your help, guess where I went? I was going to show up and be there to help because I had this respect for my dad. Now, the second type of fear is an unhealthy fear. This is an over, a fear that overwhelms you. It's a great anxiety. It's a fear that controls you. It is an unhealthy anxiety, and you focus more on the fear, okay? And it really uh, begins to kind of wreck your, your day-to-day existence. That's an unhealthy fear. Now, my dad loved old cars. And uh, those of you who knew my dad, you knew this. Our home in North Carolina was like a used car uh, lot. And I'm not kidding. We would have cars all down the side uh, lot. My dad would buy a car, sell a car, buy a car. If I told you all the cars that he had, some of you grown men would cry like babies because these cars were beautiful. And he sold them for who knows how much (laughs) back in the day. But, uh, But he would buy these cars. Now, one time, he bought uh, a car with my brother. My brother Jonathan said, he's only 14, 15. Jonathan gave a few hundred dollars of his hard-earned money to buy this 1957 Chevrolet, okay? Now, I was about 11 at the time I played Little League Baseball. I wasn't bad. I played left field or third base. I was good at running and catching. My arm wasn't the greatest, and, uh, but I enjoyed playing. And so we, I was in the backyard, and I took a rock. And I was going to throw it at this huge oak tree that we had there in the backyard in North Carolina. And I chucked that thing for all that I was worth. And it literally just curved right when it got to the tree and hit the windshield of that 1957 Chevrolet perfectly. It, it, it hit it like a, like a BB shot. I mean, really, it, it, just, it made that pock mark that you make in windshields sometimes. And suddenly I began to panic. I was like, oh, no. I hit the. I went over to look at it. Sure enough, there it was, that crack in the windshield. And, and I, I, I panicked so much, I went to my bedroom. I didn't come out for supper. I didn't talk very much for like three days. And how many of you know that was unusual for me at like 11 years old? And, and so there I was, and I was thinking, I should probably tell him, but I don't want to tell him because I don't know what the consequences are going to be of this. And so I began to just kind of put it off, put it off, put it off. 
Well, three days later, my dad had not gone down there, and I was beginning to feel a little bit relieved at least, even though I felt sort of overwhelmingly guilty. And uh, I saw my dad. I was playing basketball in the side yard. My dad walked down the hill, walked straight to that 1957 Chevrolet. It wasn't but a moment that he noticed the pockmark. I thought, oh, no, here it comes, here it comes. And he walks up the, the yard, and he goes up to me and Jonathan, where I'm playing basketball, and he says, boys, do you know what happened to this uh, windshield of this 57 Chevrolet? Jonathan immediately goes, well, I don't know what happened to my car. You know, somebody hit my car with something. And uh, in that moment then, I have a moment, a moment of truth. What should I do? And then I pause just long enough for my dad to say, you know what I bet it was, boys? I bet it was those boys down the road. They, that looks like a BB gun shot. I think those boys down the road shot my car with a BB gun. That, that's too bad. I don't, what? What? That's awesome. Yes, that must be what happened. I didn't even say anything. I just like sort of, okay, well, that's, that's better than I would have come up with. That's great. I love that. I never said anything. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. <laughs> years later, <laughs> years and years later, years later, I was like 35 and I'm not lying. We were at the dinner table. And uh, now I thought about this moment over the years, you know, that moment of I should probably tell them that I broke the windshield of that car. I mean, that car sold. They sold it for, I don't know, a little bit less than what they would have. But dad told a story at the lunch table one time about how he was a kid and he'd made some mistake. And he ended up many long time later confessing to his mom. I saw my window of opportunity. Right. And I took it and I said, hey, dad, Jonathan, everybody, you guys need to know. I'm the one who did that to the 1957. They're like, what? They're not even trying to remember, you know? What? You did that? Yeah, I did that. And everybody laughed, and thankfully, you know, I didn't get spanked or anything like that, you know? Like, that would have been weird, but. But when I think about that, and all those years of that, like, just feeling like I should probably say something, you know, kind of putting it on the back burner, and, and then. And literally in a moment, like, feeling like, okay, this is my moment. Like, I'd waited, like, 30 years to tell him this. Ridiculous. And that's an unhealthy fear. An unhealthy fear is one that says, I'm kind of cowering in the room. I, I don't want to confess. It's an unhealthy fear. It's an anxiety. And here's what I know. On this Easter Sunday, there are some of you who you had a healthy fear of God at one point. You had sort of this awe of God, this moment of, God, I, I, I reverence you, this moment of, God, I, I want to know you. You had that. But over the years, the longer you have gone in the Christian faith, the more you have kind of lost the sense of wonder or amazement about what Christ did for you on the cross. Communion becomes just kind of a, a thing that you do, a part of the service, a moment to reflect, but it's not as meaningful as what it once was. And I want to challenge you today to try to see the resurrection with new eyes today, to try to see it with new faith, this monumental ever-world-changing moment that the resurrection actually represents. And so you need that healthy fear of God. And some of the rest of you, I know on this Easter today that some of you, you, you may have a fear that has led you to a time of coming to a decision. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so some of you, you are beginning now for the first time to have fear, an awe kind of fear of God. And that's going to lead you to make a decision for Christ or make some improvements in your life. And I know some of the rest of you, you may struggle with an overwhelming fear. You worry too much. You fear your future. You fear your past. You, you 
worry often about what's going to happen with your kids or, or what's going to happen with your future. And if that's you today, I want to just say to you, you need to hear the words of Jesus who said after he resurrected, fear not, peace be with you. Jesus told us as he ascended, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. You need to know there is nothing that's going to happen in your life that's going to take you so off course. Nothing that Christ is going to let you go through that's going to take you so off course, but that God can't bring you back. So I'm just encouraging you today to see with eyes of faith, not fear. If God loves you enough to come to earth and die for you in your place, he, and if he's powerful enough to rise again, friends, you can trust him, you can rely on him, and he knows what you struggle with today. So one of the reactions to the spectacular is fear. Here's another one, doubt. Let's be honest, every one of us has struggled with doubt when it comes to matters of faith. Kind of the essence of faith means maybe I won't be able to see it with my own eyes, but I still believe it. And so there is an element of doubt for all of us. Every one of the disciples struggled with it. Wouldn't you? I mean, here again, here's your friend who was just brutally executed. You've seen people executed before. You know they don't come back from the grave. Here their friend, their leader was, brutally tortured and whipped and crucified. All hope is lost. Put yourself in their shoes in verse 9. And when they came back from the tomb, this is after the women told, were telling the men, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others were with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. All of them doubted. We like to give a hard time to Doubting Thomas from the book of John, where John tells that the disciples were all in the upper room except for Thomas. He wasn't there. Jesus showed up after the resurrection. All of them then believed, but Thomas still doubted. So we're hard on Thomas, but the truth is, Luke tells us they all doubted. Despite the fact that the prophecies about Jesus in the Jewish scriptures said he would die and come back to life, despite the fact that Jesus himself told them that it was going to happen, Despite the fact that the miracles that Jesus did when he was with them, despite even Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, these guys still doubted. They doubted. And friends, what I want to tell you today is doubt is okay. It's hap- it happens to all of us. As long as doubt leads to discovery. And I know I've shared with you guys many times, but I grew up in a Christian home. I had a faith, really, of my parents. I grew up understanding Christ. And by the time I got to college, I sort of had a crisis of faith, kind of asking big questions, and it, I needed to have a faith of my own at that point. And I've told you the story before where I just cried out to God and said, if God, if you're real, just sit next to me. And, and he didn't. I guess he had things to do, like run the universe. And I went back to my dorm room, and it, it's, it's very simple, guys, but I just looked at my hand and thought about how my body functions, and thought about my eyes, and my mind, and the very fact that I can even ask the question, is there a God, led me to a a real time of discovery in my life. Josh McDowell, at that point, had written two books called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and they're large books, and I just started digging into them, and looking into the evidence for Christ. I want to tell you what I found. One of the things I found was that there is a God who designs us. It just didn't even make logical sense to me that somehow over millions of years, given whatever right conditions or wrong conditions, that somehow life would emerge. No one's ever proven that. And and it just made more sense to me that there would be a designer, someone that would create, that would design the world in a miraculous kind of a way. That took less faith for me than trying to make the leap of over millions of years this just happened. Anything that has ever been created had to have a creator. 
And so I began to study that and understand that there was a God. And that led me then to discovery of the Bible. And I asked the question, is the Bible true? What's the difference between the Bible and every other religious text? And it led me to a time of discovery where I learned that, that the Bible was not just written by one man in comparison to other faith works like the Quran, like the Book of Mormon, written by one individual over a short period of time, giving their own thoughts and opinions. That's not difficult to be unified in that, but I tell you what is difficult. Forty different authors over 1,500 years span, writing on hundreds of controversial topics. People who didn't even know each other, lived in different times. Some were peasants, some were kings, some were on islands, some were in the city. All different areas even of the world, of that part of the world. All writing about the events of God. And if you read the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it reads like a novel and it's incredibly consistent on hundreds of controversial topics. Now how many of you know if I just gave you 10 of the most controversial topics in this room today? I said, let's all write a little like one-page paper on 10 of the most controversial topics. How many of you know we'd have a variety of opinions in this very room? And we all live in the same basic town, the same basic area, have the same kind of experiences. And yet here they were writing. What that told me was that somebody outside of the writing of this book had to have influence over not only the writing but also the events of that book. That began to convince me. I'll tell you another reason I began to believe the Bible is because of fulfilled prophecies. In no other religious text of the world are there fulfilled prophecies except for the Quran, which has one self-fulfilling prophecy that Muhammad would eventually return to Mecca. That's all. But in the Scripture, there are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus alone. Over 300 about what he was going to be like, where he was going to be born, how he was going to die. In fact, Read the, the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, says when God says to the enemy, the devil, that one of these days the devil would strike his heel, the, the son of the woman would strike his heel, but he would crush his head, that Jesus would crush the head of the enemy. And that was a prophecy about crucifixion. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented as a form of torture and persecution. Now, what, that began to convince me that these fulfilled prophecies Jesus fulfilled, made the Bible to me true. Now, I could go on and on and on with the evidence. In fact, I also have evidence for the reason that I believe that Jesus existed. Hardly anybody denies that. Jesus was a historical figure. It was known not only by the Bible, but also outside the Bible histories that were written about him. But not only that, did you know that Jesus' death was written about outside the Bible? Did you know that even his resurrection was written about outside of the Bible? Not only that, but when I hear about Jesus and his resurrection, the culmination of our faith, and I think about why do I believe in the resurrection? Because every argument against it are the weakest arguments ever. Things like, well, maybe he didn't really die on the cross. Things like, well, maybe they took his body. Well, if they tried to take his body, the Jews wanted him dead. They would have tried to immediately bring it back. So everybody could say, no, Jesus, he's dead. He's dead. I believe in the resurrection. I always have. And while I've had doubts and times of discovery, it has led me to deeper and deeper searching for the truth. One of the greatest reasons I believe in the resurrection is not only its own uh, impact on my own life, but the fact that these, these apostles of Jesus, that before, after he died, they were very fearful. They hid for their own lives. And immediately when they saw the resurrected Lord, they immediately changed their lives. They became great ambassadors for that truth. And every single one of them, except for John the Apostle, were killed brutally for their faith in Christ, the fact that they believed in him. Here's what I'm saying. 
I'm not giving you all the evidence today, but I am glad for 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that says, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to c- come to repentance. And I'm glad God was patient with me, patient with my doubt, and God's patient with your doubt too. Not only that, I think when there's spectacular things that happen, there are also questions. Luke chapter 24, verse 12, Peter got up, it says, and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Here is Peter. Here's his reaction. He runs to the tomb. He looks in. He sees Jesus is not there, and he walks away wondering or asking or kind of considering, what has happened here? He has an inquisitive mind. And for some of you, maybe you don't doubt faith or you don't doubt uh, God But what you do have is questions in your mind. How did it happen? I want to know more about Christ. How did he do that? Why did he resurrect from the dead? The other thing we're introduced to in Luke 24 is two other guys. And it says in verse 13 that on the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and they discussed, and they talked about these things. And then Jesus himself came up and walked among them, but they were kept from recognizing. They heard about the resurrection. But now here they are asking questions about it. They're talking with each other. They're debating it. And I love how Jesus handled their questions. Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. I love that Jesus just simply patiently answered their questions and took time with them. And what I want to say to all of you guys is this. Sometimes we feel like in the church there's one person talking and everybody else looking and there's never any opportunity for questions and how do I get to know any answers or things like that. And I want you to know this is a place where questions are welcome. That if you want to call or text or ask or ask a friend, say, how did this happen? I want to know more about this. We we love trying to answer questions. And one thing I learned is that I'm still learning as well and so I'm still on a search for discovery too. Some answers have come easy for me. Some have been much more difficult. I love playing. Uh, one of the things I love about kids is they're so like uh, they they uh, they're so fun, especially when it comes to games like hide and seek. And uh, just last Sunday, two of my nieces, Brooklyn and and Ellie, they're my brothers, Mark's daughters, kids, and and they are there at lunchtime. One's about four, one's about two. Super cute, and and uh, they were like, Stephen, Stephen. I was sitting in the living room. We want to play hide and seek. We want to play hide and seek. I'm like, okay, great. This will be awesome. And you know where I, you know where they hid. In the living room where I was, okay? So I'm like, they hid behind the couch, which is just right across the room. And so I count, you know, one, two, three, four, ten, ten. Ready or not, here I come. And suddenly their mom comes in the room and says, where's Ellie? Where's Brooklyn? And I was like, oh, we're playing hide and seek. She's like, okay, girls. And then, and I was like, okay, ready or not, here I come. I wonder where they are. That's what I said immediately they jump up from behind the couch. They go, here we are, here we are. I mean, I don't even have time to look for them. Here we are. Sometimes finding things is easy. Sometimes it's not easy. Jason was a masterful hide-and-seek player. And at six years old, uh, we were there. We're going to play hide-and-seek. Ready or not, here I come. He goes to hide. I know he's in the basement. I go down to the basement. I'm looking everywhere. I cannot find the kid. It's like he disappeared. And I'm looking around, I can't find him super quiet, like he will not say a peep until finally I, I go, I give up, I cannot find you, I do not know where you are. And all of a sudden I hear this off in the distance, yoo 
And I'm looking around, yoo-hoo, I still can't find him. That's how hidden he is. He had gotten on top of a cabinet, put clothes all around him, and he is buried under there. Yoo-hoo! And so finally I I came and, uh, there you are. Sometimes it's hard to find answers. Here's, Here's what I know. Some answers when it comes to faith are not that difficult. For me, understanding that God designed me was not a far leap for me. But the longer that I live, the more that I understand that I really don't know. The more questions I have, deep questions about why God does what he does. But what I know is that God is big enough to have those questions answered and and asked. And sometimes he reveals an answer through his scripture or through some other thing. and, And I go, wow, okay, I get that. And sometimes there are answers that I probably won't know until I get to heaven. But what I want everybody here to know is, if you have times of questions, you are welcome here. It's a place where we can address those things together. We can learn and grow together about who God is. These are not easy things always, but there is a truth to find. I also love the fact that when they, these individuals, Jesus gave them answers, it says that he sat down and ate with them. At that point, their eyes were open and they saw Jesus. There's just something about times of the table, times we're able to sit down with the Lord, and he answers the questions, their eyes are open, and they return to Jerusalem saying, it's true, the Lord is risen. And by the way, for those of you with questions today, I want to give you what Jesus said in Matthew 7. It says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. Questions are allowed. The one, one other reaction that I see here, and, and to kind of supernatural, spectacular things, is just simply joy and amazement. Look at verse 36. It says, when they were still talking about this, Jesus himself, this is now with the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands, look at my feet, it's myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, Now, I'm going to stop there for a second because this was not, he was right there before them. This was not a, I don't believe in you. This was a, oh my, this is too good to be true. Like, you were resurrected. And because of joy and amazement, their minds could almost not conceptualize the fact that Jesus was standing with them. And then, I love this part, he goes, "Um, do you have anything to eat? Which I love that because if I was in the grave for three days, I'd be pretty hungry myself, you know? But I think he did it more because he wanted to prove to them that ghosts don't eat food. And so they were like, well, we got a little leftover fish. And they give him that. And, and, and he eats the broiled fish. And he took it in, in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled, what is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them this. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead. And on the third day, will arise, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I love this scripture because here they are, they were struggling with doubt, and then all of a sudden, he shows up among them, and they are so filled with joy and amazement. I like what the message version of this says. It says they still couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was too much. It was good to, too good to be true. The disciples then went away from that place with joy and amazement. Their friend is alive. The scripture is true. Jesus is the Messiah. And I, I love the idea because there are a lot of you here today, honestly, that came and you need a message of joy and amazement because somewhere over time, your joy has been squashed by life circumstances. 
And for those of you who are in that circumstance today, you've grown up with the kind of the hardship of life, and you ask tough questions like, how can I have joy in the midst of this difficulty? How can I have joy in the midst of this struggle? What I want to encourage you with is a scripture from Acts 2.28 that says, God, you have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. And one of the ways I find joy in this life is not because of the hardships, but in the middle of the hardships, God has laid out a path. People will ask us, you guys have been through a lot of hardship recently. How can you have joy with your father passing away not long ago? How can you have joy with Sherry? Sherry was here this morning, but is not here now. I haven't seen her this service because she continues to get weaker. How can you have joy in that? How can Sherry have joy in the midst of such difficult circumstances? Because she has a joy outside of her circumstances. She has a joy of the Lord. She has a joy that says no matter what happens in life, we know that there's a greater future ahead. We, we remember the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 that says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And you, even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy that ultimately we will receive the reward of our faith. So how do you have joy in the midst of hardship? And friends, we understand hardship. We understand loss. One of the things about the longer you live, the more you're going to lose some things. You're going to have some family members that go on to be in heaven. You're going to have some relationships that strain you. Your heart is going to be broken by those that you love. You're going to break people's hearts. The longer you live, the more you realize that life is hard, but life can still be good. And friends, what I want to help you recapture today is the joy that you once had, the amazement at what Christ has done. I love the story that Mike Bro tells about a grandfather who would always give the kids little bags of Cheerios. And you can use this idea if you want to. He would say, okay, kids, tonight we're going to go out in the backyard and we're going to sow some donut seeds. All right, we're going to sow some donut seeds, everybody. We're going to take the Cheerios and we're going to sow. We're going to scatter these Cheerios and we're going to, I mean, these donut seeds. And we're going to have donuts in the morning. And everybody would be like, oh, this is so great. We're going to have donuts in the morning. And in the morning they would wake up, and just before they got up, grandfather would go out in the backyard, and he'd take like a cream-filled donut and put it over here. He'd put like a chocolate donut over here. He'd put a glazed donut over here, all over the backyard, and the kids would wake up, and they're like, oh, it worked! The donut seeds worked! And they'd be so excited because there would be donuts everywhere. Immediately my mind went to, like, there's probably ants crawling on those things too, but I mean, whatever, you know, this is my, this is what happens when you get old, you know, you lose the joy of the moment. And, uh, but one of the things I love about kids is they don't care about that. They're like, yeah, give me that donut. This is so exciting. It's so joy-filled. And somewhere along the way, what I've seen often happen is that people go through the middle part of their life, and a lot of times they get through the middle part of their life, it seems like someone has robbed their Cheerios. It seems like someone has taken the joy out of the moment. And what I've also seen, though, a lot of times is people that are able to work through that I've seen a lot of older people. You know, our family's been involved in nursing home work for a long time. My grandparents started nursing home. My dad was involved in that kind of ministry. And as I've seen older people in the church, too, if they are in the Lord and they get closer to heaven, somehow the Cheerios become pretty exciting again. Somehow there's something about the sweetness of older years where they've worked through the hardship and they look back with perspective. But I'm talking to a lot of people today that are kind of in those middle years, right? Um, We don't have too many elderly people here today. And one of the things that I want to encourage all of you guys with is this, that some of you are going through those hard times right now, but hang on, friends, because God has a better day tomorrow. The Bible says weeping may endure for a moment, but joy comes in the morning. People say, well, how do you endure what you've gone through? How do you endure hardship in family? How do you endure loss of family members? 
I endure it because there's a greater morning ahead. I endure it because tomorrow morning when we wake up and we end up in heaven with my dad, people say, well, what do you think he's doing? Would you want him back here? Oh, we miss him terribly. But I wouldn't want dad back here for a million years, for a million things, a million dollars. Why? Dad's experiencing things in heaven that I only dream about experiencing. And one day we'll be with him and he can show me around. And so I think all of us need a different perspective. This is God, I need the joy of the Lord. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so I want to encourage you today, friends. Listen, if you deal with fear, totally normal reaction. But I do want you to have a fear, a healthy fear of God. Don't worry, the Bible says. Don't be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and petition, give thanks to God. He is your strength in those moments of anxiety. And again, have an awesome respect for God. Those of you who struggle with doubt today, let it lead you to discovery. Don't just throw in the towel. Don't just throw up your hands. Begin to search. Begin to research. Begin to understand and pray with eyes of faith. Those of you who have questions, maybe you've haven't doubted, but you just have legitimate questions today. You need to know that God is big enough to handle your, your questions. And we can dialogue together and kind of learn as a process together, figuring out more about why God does what he does, understanding that we're not going to understand everything, but we can understand more together. And, uh, and then, friends, if you are a person who needs joy today, realize that we celebrate the ultimate giver of joy. The Bible says, yet for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. Why? Because he knew that when he died for you, he was giving you ultimate joy and forgiveness for everlasting life. Now, there's nothing like that. And some of you today, you need to recapture that spirit of donuts in the morning. You need to recapture that spirit of joy. And, and don't let it pass you. You need to recapture that spirit of amazement in what God has done for you. So we're going to celebrate. I want to pray for you today. And if you need to make a decision for Christ, you can do that today, right now. God, thank you so much for loving us. God, thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. And God, today we just pray for those who have fear, that they would have a right fear for God, a healthy fear, but instead they would not have a, an unhealthy anxiety, being overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. God, for those who doubt, I pray that it would lead them to discovery. And God, for those who have questions, I pray that they would begin to learn and research and search. And when they seek you, the Bible says, you will be found by them, the book of Deuteronomy tells us. And God, also for those who have lost their sense of joy, or God, those who need joy for the first time. Lord, I pray for those who want to make a decision for the first time, that they can believe in you, and they can confess that you're Lord of their life, they can repent of their sin, and they can be baptized into Christ. God, I pray that if they're not ready today, but they would make that decision very quickly because none of us are promised tomorrow. And God, I pray that you would renew today as we walk out of this place that sense of joy and amazement in the fact that not only did you die for us, but three days later you rose from the dead. God, we thank you in Jesus' name.